0: Hey, Scott. Yes, Adam. Who would you rather fight, Captain Picard, or Captain Picard's brother?
1: I don't know. They both tussled in the mud. Was a mud tussling? Captain Picard seems like less of a fighter than his brother, who's a jerk. I take
0: Picard. (laughs) You want to fight? You can win. Yep. Yeah.
1: Coming to you almost live from a vineyard in futuristic France, this is The Unknown Studio. I'm Scott. I'm Adam. We are your muddy hosts. Muddy, grapey,
0: delicious. It's just, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you were to lick one of us right now... It, it, would, it would be really gross. It would be muddy and grapey. Yep. And just a hint of um, uh, smugness, I think, too. Because... Who doesn't romp in the mud and then take a bubble bath with their dear friend and (laughs) smugly drink wine? I feel like that's what we'd be doing, just like like the Picards. Just like the Picards. So uh, the last time we did a show um, was before, long before, the Trudeau cabinet was selected. That's correct. And we surmised that he would select a cabinet. We did surmise that. And he did select a cabinet. He did do that. Uh, Shockingly, it's yeah. I mean, it was like like a like clockwork on a schedule, even. Uh, and he did select two
1: Alberta MPs. Yeah, as which part of his cabinet?
0: We we were very hopeful.
1: Yes, uh, of course, Kent Hare. Yeah, from down in Calgary, and uh, Amarjeet Sohi from here in Edmonton.
0: Yeah, and uh, I don't I, the photographs from the. Uh, I don't know if it's called like an inauguration or a swearing in. I guess it's a the swearing, swearing in. in. Yeah. Um, the The look on on Sohi's face was brilliant. He just he was beaming the whole time. It was oh yes, it was fabulous to see him uh, awarded a post that he deserves. Agreed. And one that I think um, has a lot to do with uh, cities too, because it's yes. infrastructure, right?
1: Yes. And his uh, experience on Edmonton City Council will serve him well. Yeah. Moving forward in that
0: post, I believe. And Kent Hare is uh, Veterans Affairs. That is correct. Which is uh, one of those cabinet positions that's been contentious over the last couple of years. I would say I would I would agree, and I would also say that it's because because it's been neglected. I would say you're not wrong. Yeah, but uh, this country hasn't been. As good to its veterans as it should be.
1: Uh, really, only as bad to our veterans as have been our neighbors in the United States to their veterans.
0: Yeah, which is weird because we're kind of fighting wars right now. Yep. Yep, we are. And uh, yeah, that's a whole thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, federal politics. And international politics. Depressing, Very, as, as usual. Bombings in Beirut and France.
1: Yep. We are recording this uh, on the weekend that the attacks happened in France, and that's yeah. been on top of everyone's mind. But there were several other natural disasters and bombings
0: yeah, there was an around earth, the country. There an was an earthquake, earthquake in, Japan, in Japan, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, and there was actually a, a tremendous loss of life this weekend globally. So uh, just just sad news all
0: around. Yeah, it's one of those, it's one of those things, and I don't, I'm not saying this to be funny or anything, but you know when they say there's a great disturbance in the force? That's kind of what this feels like. I mean, I, I spoke to my mom this morning, who is from France, and she said she's just been sick to her stomach for the last few days. I believe it. Um, you know, how how do you even begin to explain? Uh, and then, of course, all the commentators on social media come out and say horrific things. Doesn't help. Uh, that has been happening, and it's been terrible. You posted A something French,
1: very... Uh, Journalist called out uh, several uh right wing American pundits yes. for uh, starting to politicize the tragedy in France, not to say that there weren't that not to not to lessen the magnitude of any of the tragedies elsewhere in the world, yeah but uh, specifically the tragedy in France in this case uh politicizing it for their right wing agenda essentially before bodies had even cooled on the streets.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was terrible. I think it was was it um it was a Fox commentator or something that was saying something ridiculous and the French media were who are uh, I think a little bit more measured in their approach to, you know, covering these kinds of things um were just like what the fuck are you talking about? Kind of. Yeah. And I it, you know it's been it's been I I have a real um Love-hate relationship with the way these things get covered. I want to see everything. I want to know everything that's going on. It's the commentary on social media that drives me nuts. And there's a comedian named Anthony Jezelnik who's got a special on Netflix that you should watch. Uh, And he spends about the last 10 minutes of that show talking about what he hates about people expressing their feelings on social media. And, you know, everyone says thoughts and prayers. My thoughts and prayers are with the victims. My thoughts and prayers. And, you know, I, I mean... I suppose it's all that some people can really do, but um, what does it really? What does it really add? I mean, I don't know. I've been I've been grappling with this over the weekend. You feel it's in human nature to feel empathy. Yes,
1: um, even the worst people uh, feel a, a shred of empathy when some when when a, a major disaster or a major atrocity is. If you're if you're not a sociopath, yeah. Uh, there's some twinge of empathy, and even if you're powerless to actually reach out and you know give a hug to a victim, you you want to express that somehow. You want to send your condolences. It's like when you have a friend whose uh, who's a family member passes away. There's not really much you can do except to say, "Hey, I'm sorry that happened," and it's it's the same impulse. So yeah,
0: you might not be helping, but. It's it's I guess it's okay to express those things. Exactly. And I you know that's what that's what social media is for for a lot of people is just the opportunity or the ability to be able to express those feelings and I don't know, uh, commiserate together. I guess so. And I yeah. and you know what if that gives people comfort I'm not going to fault them for it but uh, I have kept my mouth shut on social media all weekend. I usually keep my
1: mouth shut about big issues. Now on you social
0: media. you did have and that's that's partly a function of your job. Yes. Yeah. But uh, but uh, you did you did make a really interesting comment on Facebook uh, a couple hours ago at the time of this recording. Uh, yeah, and uh, do you remember what you said?
1: It was something along the lines of the attack in France was deliberately calculated to sow paranoia and mistrust about the Syrian refugees. Right, and by then immediately. Uh, turning them away or saying that we should not welcome them we're we're essentially doing exactly what what the terrorists want yeah and that uh, all I was saying was that is food for thought sure
0: yeah no i whether I, it changes
1: your opinion about whether we should be taking in syrian refugees or not it's none of my business i'm just saying that is what the terrorists want the terrorists don't want us to accept those people with open arms because that flies in the face of their narrative which is a narrative that says that we in the west Especially non-Muslims yeah. who recruit people, and it's what allows them to continue to uh, uh, fuel their black and white worldview that they have. It messes them up, yeah. and it and it lessens the fight. Like, so s- that's why that's why they do this. Yeah, they uh, want they want us to hate them because it justifies their hatred of us. Totally.
0: Yeah, and I I mean I hope this doesn't impact uh, Canada's plan to bring Syrian refugees here. I think it's really important for uh,
1: doing that today at the time of this recording, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was at the G20 meeting uh, in Europe and he uh, reiterated his full intention to take in 25,000 Syrian refugees. I still think we
0: could do more, but 25,000 is a great starting point.
1: Especially by the end of the year. That's a lot of refugees.
0: That's true. That's true. But then, you know, and we shouldn't be comparing ourselves to other countries, or maybe we should, but Germany's taking in hundreds of thousands.
1: Germany's basically said, bring us your your poor and your needy.
0: Yeah, and I, you know, that might be a function of, of, you know, Germany's uh, history. Maybe, I'm totally just, you know, um, surmising that perhaps, you know, they feel... That the past, they did some shitty things in the past. You're absolutely correct, and for the record. Yeah. And There is,
1: uh, for the majority of of uh, Germans, there is a, there's still like a great sense of national shame. Yes. Yeah. And they really do feel like they kind of owe it to others yeah. to do better. And that's not true for all Germans, because there is, of course, an extreme right-wing sure. party in Germany that are... Essentially, looking back at the Third Reich as the golden age, mm-hmm. um, but they are a very small minority. Yeah, that's right. A very small minority, and uh, the, the majority of Germans, I think, uh, really do re- are support. Certainly, the the influx of refugees, and it's because they uh, they legitimately still have that. Yeah. That no. kind of national identity of, oh, we, we're really sorry
0: about what happened in World War Two guys. Yeah, yeah. Really, really feel bad about that. Uh and who knows if that'll last another couple generations. It may, and and that's fine. Um, because
1: um World War Two is now a very distant memory for even some of the oldest people on planet Earth. It's true. And uh it's it's certainly not in your or mine memory.
0: Nope. Because no, we were not alive at that time. We have, uh, or had, grandparents who who maybe were and remember. And uh, it's, you know, even you go to like, I mean, it was just Remembrance Day, and, and you go to some of those uh, events that they do, and um, the the number of combat veterans from those wars... Dwindles it, every year? Every year, yeah. And it's sad. On the other hand, veterans from
1: existing wars continue to increase, and this brings our topic full circle that's why it's good to have someone in the Veterans Affairs Office who will probably do better for our veterans.
0: Yeah, for sure. Now, uh, uh, Jimmy Jong, who, is, uh, who was a Gateway photographer back in our day mm-hmm. and is now a professional uh, freelance photographer, mm-hmm. posted this article um, on the, from the Herald News, which I believe is in Nova Scotia, uh, on Facebook. And it's a story that's, th- that's three years old. But the, uh, the headline says Canada turned away Jewish refugees. And so what it says is that, I'm gonna read, read it to you really quickly. It was 1939 and 907 Jewish refugees aboard the German transatlantic liner St. Louis were seeking sanctuary from Nazi Germany. Canada refused to take them in and the ship sailed back to Europe where 254 of those 907 uh, Jews would later die in concentration camps. What I don't want, is history to repeat itself. Exactly. This in Syria we have an obligation I think to do that.
1: Well, it's a humanitarian obligation arguably.
0: Yeah, and and the, the, that they must all be vetted for security purposes fine, sure. Well, there's and you know, there's a difference between
1: prudence and paranoia. Yes. That anybody who and anybody who seeks refugee status in Canada, anybody should be vetted. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that we should automatically assume that
0: any of them are terrorists in disguise. Agreed. Totally agree. So, I mean, that's that's what the world has been like <laughs> this weekend. It's, it's been it's been a pretty crummy weekend. Yeah. Now you worked all weekend. This must have been something you had to keep talking about in the news cycle. Absolutely. Top story basically since Friday. Yeah. When it when it happened. And what of the updates? Well, I mean, it's not really. There's no point in talking about it on the show. Not but... really.
1: I, I, at this juncture, it's mostly talking about the aftermath. People in mourning.
0: Yep. What have you? Yeah. I saw a few comments saying that um you know this this means that Prime Minister Trudeau needs to change uh his view on foreign policy uh of pulling troops out of you know the Syrian uh air campaign and uh and I think Iraq I don't know if that's actually true I don't know if this means we have to change our foreign policy He did not intimate that he
1: was planning to change that policy and actually I read an article and uh I've put myself on the spot in bringing it up, so I, I do not recall uh, which American uh, politician posted it. Yeah, um, but it was basically, an, it was basically looking back over the last 14 years of the war on terror, and saying, when you look at what just happened in France, nothing that was done from the invasion of Iraq up until the present. None of the liberties that were given up, none of the wars that were fought, none of the soldiers who have died prevented what happened in in France or anywhere else in the world yeah. this weekend. And so maybe it is time to change the approach. Maybe it's time to stop this and start something new, because what's happened over the last 14 years has not helped and has possibly arguably made it worse. And maybe it's time to just reevaluate how the how how terrorism is being dealt with and and try something different.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I, there was a headline that I saw uh, on Facebook uh, a few hours ago which basically said that ISIS is indirectly the product of the two Bush presidencies. That would not be the first
1: article I've seen that makes that claim. Now, and I'm
0: not there I'm not sure what the chain of evidence looks like, but yeah. I mean, you know, on the face of it you think about some of the actions taken by both presidents and not even by the Bush presidents, by American presidents in general in fighting terrorism in, in the middle East. And, uh, you know, in, in a lot of ways, I'm, I, I believe that ISIS is a product of, uh, of, this, of the Of the instability
1: and the chaos and the death and the warfare and the strife in that region
0: that's been going on for decades. The question that I have, and I don't expect you to have an answer, I certainly don't know what it is, is if the war on terror has not worked so far, what do we need to do differently?
1: I, I have no that, idea. There is the big question for the, the th- big brains at... Wherever wherever, to figure out. And we are certainly not those big brains.
0: No. Uh, the only thing I know about foreign policy is that um, you cannot ship kinder eggs to the United States. That, that is considered smuggling. That is, yes. Yeah. Did you, knew, did you know that? that the, yes. They don't have kinder eggs in the US. Uh,
1: there is a law in the books in the United States that states that you cannot have something inedible right. inside of something edible um, with the exception of, like, Popsicle sticks and stuff like that. Right. And it's because there is concern that a kid might choke on it. And unfortunately for the Americans, kinder eggs fall into that category, wherein there is something inedible inside of the chocolate, and therefore
0: it is illegal in the United States. It's it's a weird law. It's I mean, I, I, sorry, it's a weird law when you think about kinder eggs. It's not a weird law when you think about how there shouldn't be inedible crap in our food. Yeah. But, like... <laughs> I mean, the whole concept behind a Kinder Egg is that there's a toy inside. Yeah. Like, so, you don't buy a Kinder Egg and not think there's a toy inside. Well, and, it's,
1: and the egg immediately comes apart in two. Yeah,
0: it's, like, designed to, that way. Yeah,
1: so that you can get to the, the delicious toy in the middle.
0: So what does that mean for uh, toys in cereal boxes?
1: Well, that doesn't count because it's not in the
0: cereal. It's just in the cereal box. It's, but that's true, actually. Yes. Damn it. It was crazy. Americans, I imagine. Uh, I imagine Kinder's fine with it. I wouldn't want. Well, to... Well, and there are other Kinder products. Yeah, and I wouldn't want to. Uh, I wouldn't want to run afoul of of you know U.S. food law. It, it, well, the, and I'm there was it's... recently
1: a bust. Actually,
0: <laughs> really? I'm not even
1: joking. That's why I thought you brought it up because of it. There was recently a bust, and a uh, a group of smugglers were
0: caught smuggling Kinder eggs into the United States, and they got charged. That's amazing. Yeah, can you imagine that being like? If, if you go to jail for that, like you're gonna get the shit beat out of you. What are you in for?
1: Smuggling. Oh, cocaine, heroin.
0: No, really, shitty toys uh, wrapped of in chocolate. chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> so are you gonna are you gonna beat me up now, or do you want to wait until we're in the yard when the guards are far away? <laughs> <'Cause> it's just <laughs> like ridiculous. Just ridiculous. Um, it is. It's tax season in Edmonton. In a way, it's it's a uh, it's the season where the city council debates. The budget That
1: is correct. It is budget time,
0: and uh, it's
1: really the happiest time of year. Yeah, for who for people
0: who like to complain about what the city spends money on <laughs> and for journalists who cover the city of Edmonton as yep. well, yeah, so um, so they were looking at something like a four point nine percent increase mm-hmm. and then they started uh, to shave that down. Yeah, like getting rid of important stuff, like neighborhood renewal. yep. well, sorry, they're going to fund neighborhood renewal differently. yes. But uh, it's And there were a couple comments this week as well from people who were just
1: like, you know, it's weird that people complain when the city says they're not going to do X yeah. because they don't have the money, but then complain just as hard when the city says, well, we're going to raise taxes by X so that we have the money to pay for the thing you want. Yeah. Like you you can't, they are mutually exclusive. You can't have one without the other.
0: But people don't understand that. They just want what they want and they don't understand why it has to be so complicated. Yep. Uh, so I don't know what that means practically. The debate's not over yet. They haven't, <laughs> oh certainly not. They haven't decided on the final and number. the final budget isn't going to be out for a while yet. So. No, that usually doesn't that usually come out in January, something like that. And then your property tax assessment comes out in June. Yeah, and most people, by the way, the four point nine percent that they were initially talking about is based on it's not even the average household. It's it's called the typical household, and I don't know how they arrive at 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 trying to figure out that number, but most. Uh, homeowners will pay much less than that 4.9 percent increase, like, because yeah. most of us aren't, you know, the typical home. Because most of us are also poor, yes, <laughs> destitute, basically, uh, 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 pulling down that sweet, sweet podcast money. Yeah, well, to supplement our income. <laughs> <laughs> once upon a time, <laughs> we were, we did, we very, we we earned revenue at the Unknown Studio. We never earned profit. That's correct. But we always had revenue, and there was always beer in our mouths. Well, there's frequently beer in our mouths. Yeah. Anyway. There's so, still beer in our mouths. Yeah, not, but not right now, like because we're talking about stuff. <laughs> okay, so now something very exciting happened last week. Fallout 4 came out. Yes. And this is important because we're both fans of the Fallout series. You more so than I even. I am obsessed with Fallout. Uh, I actually... Um, Gord Lacey, who is on the show, he runs uh, the website TV Shows on DVD. Mm-hmm. And um, he purchased one of the Fallout Limited Edition Loot Crates. The one that has the Pip-Boy in it? It does not have the Pip-Boy. Oh. But anyway, so he ordered one with one email account and another one with another email account because he was like, I'll just sell these. Uh, I wound up being the sucker that he sold one of them to and cracked that open on Friday. It had, among other things, a uh, Vault 111 uh, hoodie. Nice, which is very very cool, and uh, some some Fallout coasters, hmm. like a Voltec coaster. Uh, um, what's what's the name of the lat? The boy is he called? The it's Pip Boy. That, it's Pit Boy. Yeah. So one of those, and so just cool little shit. But I don't have a next generation system, so I have not played this game. I've I've not even I haven't even seen gameplay other than the trailers hmm. and shit. You've been playing it all well all week. I've I've played seven hours of it. Perhaps. And I, because
1: I, the opportunity to play it just has been slipping away. And I've been splitting my time with it in something else. But uh,
0: uh, yes, I have played some. And what, what's your, what are your impressions of the game so far? So
1: the game blew my mind in the first six minutes.
0: <laughs> okay, uh, When I
1: made my character, yeah. and as I often do in games like that, I named my character after myself okay. for ease of use. And my robot butler Codsworth, fully voiced, uh, greeted me as Mr. Scott. Really? And I was like, the game's just blown my mind. That's that's Codsworth imp- knew that I was named Scott and called me
0: Scott. That's impressive. I wonder if I always name my character. I first of all, I always play a woman because if I have the option in a video game, I will always I will I play often the do of gender. too.
1: Uh usually my usually my first playthrough I'll play through as quote unquote me. Yeah. And then in my second playthrough I'll I'll just immediately gender swap and, and play through as a female character.
0: Yeah. Um but I always give them really crass names and I'm not going to repeat any of them here. <laughs> I wonder if Codsworth would repeat or if he only does the proper name. I
1: have since learned. Okay. There's a list of about 950 names that he is programmed to recognize and speak and as Bethesda knows their players, some of them are not actually names.
0: Okay. That's
1: all I'm going to say and oh, you can man. you can find the list online.
0: Okay, cool. Now, um So your your mind was blown six minutes in. This is you're just creating a character at this point. Yeah. What's the
1: world like? It's uh well it's the Boston area. Right. So there's a lot of Boston accents. Oh, that that must be so funny. Um, they added in uh, a lot of crafting this time. Yeah. A ton of weapon and armor modding. Um, you get a suit of power armor basically right away. Cool. But you have a limited battery for it, so you have to pick your spot. Really. Where you want to whip out your power armor. Oh, uh, which is also fully customizable. And you can customize your settlements. So like the, the suburb you start the game in, you can tear down the broken down houses, scrap them for parts, and build your own settlements and draw settlers and merchants to come
0: and, and do business there. So I could build Megaton in Fallout 4, except uh, that I don't have the, you know. The bomb. Yeah. Yeah. They never gave me the bomb, Scott. It's he true. Never gave me the bomb. They don't trust you with the bomb. No. Uh, yeah, you can do the stuff like that. That sounds awesome. Crafting seems like a big part of a lot of games now. It uh, it's part of the whole
1: Minecraft craze. Yeah, because Minecraft made made it popular. Also, Minecraft basically was a huge paradigm shift in in video gaming.
0: True, true.
1: It's what all the kids are playing.
0: Uh, it's remarkable. Like I go over to my cousin's house and his son is playing it on the iPhone and he's really good at it. Like he's got. I don't know, like one of the toughest materials you can get on Minecraft. He's got like full suits of armor and stuff like that, so it's it's amazing. But you know, the, I mean, crafting. When I started playing Skyrim in two thousand twelve, mm-hmm, even mm-hmm. though it came out in two thousand eleven. Uh, so by the way, Skyrim is now uh, four years old. That is correct. It turned four that on November eleventh. Yep. And uh, but the crafting loomed large in that game as well. I mean, there was you could smith, you could be you could do alchemy. Um, It just seems like that's part of RPGs now. Some of the older Elder Scrolls games, though, had that too. Like I played Daggerfall back in the day. Yeah, which was
1: literally the second Elder Scrolls game, uh, and it was huge in open world. It was bigger than Skyrim. No kidding. um, Because they weren't dealing with three D generated stuff. It was all two D sprites and whatnot. Right. And uh, so the the world that Daggerfall took place on was. Uh, famously described as like twice the size of Great Britain. It was insane. Cool. You could wander for days and not come across a settlement. Really? Um, And uh, they had crafting in that as well. Like you could go to the Mage's Guild still and make your own spells. Okay. You could could do stuff like that. Um, You could make your own magic items, what have you. So, I mean, that's been part of that game for a long time. But I, I agree that Skyrim really upped it. It felt like it. And Fallout 4 even ups it again. Really? Like, like when you customize a weapon in Fallout 4, it looks different. That's amazing. That's incredible. Um, Stuff like that. You can name your guns. Really? So you can have a gun named Bessie if you want.
0: (laughs) It's great. Fuck, I have to play this game. Um, But first, I need to get an X-Gen system.
1: Yes, you do. Yeah. You need to get yourself a PlayStation 4 or an Xbox One. Not a Wii U. It's not available on the Wii U. You should still get a Wii U though cuz they're fun. Okay. And
0: uh or a Gaming PC, I play it on PC. Oh, okay. So you do have an Xbox One though, right? I do not. I have a PlayStation 4. Ah, okay. That is the system that I believe that I will be getting. It's a good choice. I've been told it's superior. The PlayStation 1 has gotten better.
1: Yeah. It is it is not the laughing stock that it was when it was first announced. That's good. Uh it's it's made strides. Uh I picked PS4 first for this gen and I'll I, I'll get an Xbox One eventually. I have no illusions of that. <laughs> Uh but yeah, I, I picked the PlayStation 4 first this time
0: and I don't regret it. Cool. I wonder why it's called Xbox One.
1: Because it's your one entertainment system.
0: I get it now. There you go.
1: And the 360, what was that about? Oh. <laughs> because it was double whatever the original Xbox was.
0: <laughs> Xbox 180? Uh-huh. Who knows? Whatever. Who cares? Uh it's nearly Christmas season. It, well, some would argue it is Christmas season. So here's a question for you. I know that you guys, you're, you're fond of Christmas. You're a fan of Christmas. I am known
1: to like the Christmas you time. Do,
0: you, don't, you don't dislike Christmas? Certainly not. Okay, so my question is, how early do you guys put up your decorations for Christmas? <sighs> you don't like really? Like the week before. Like uh, we seriously? Are, but that's entirely laziness. We just, we drag our feet on that. So if, Eventually our Christmas stuff will get out. If Rachel had her way, it would be up right after Halloween. Now, I, out of respect and desperation, uh, I insist that we not put anything up until after Remembrance Day.
1: There are a lot of people like that. I actually was a little irked this year with the amount of people who were like, it's disrespectful for the, to the troops. Out of respect, you should wait until after Remembrance Day to put up your Christmas. And I'm like, I don't think there are many veterans in Canada who are offended by Christmas. Yeah. I think you can put up your Christmas decorations Whenever you want. And I th- I actually was irate about it because I felt that there were a lot of people using our veterans as an excuse to express their uh, being—what's uh, the word I'm looking for? Being— outraged that Christmas stuff was already out. At the
0: beginning it, it was of an opportunity for outrage. It, it was an opportunity for people
1: to express that they just don't like that Christmas starts at the beginning of November for a lot of people and that they were hiding behind Remembrance Day to use it. That's, and I felt that was disrespectful. <laughs> so that is why, that is why I was somewhat irked by that. And I mean, sure, maybe there's, there's a good point to be made that stores bring out their Christmas stuff too early, but people buy their Christmas stuff really early. So, so it's, if people are going to keep going out and Christmas shopping that early, stores are going to start putting out Christmas uh, f- stuff yeah. that
0: early. For me, you know, it's it's not about um, it's not about disrespect of veterans. The two are not even remotely related. I don't understand how anyone could think, oh, you've got your Christmas tree up, you must not give a shit about Remembrance Day. That's kind of absurd. Um, I don't know what they're reacting to, but uh, you know, Christmas time and the holidays—they've they've become bizarre. There's this odd flow of social commentary that occurs throughout it, around it. That's just, it's strange. It is
1: the war on Christmas.
0: Yes, yes. In fact, Starbucks waged war on Christmas, depending on what you read uh, recently, because on their red cups, they took off the snowflakes.
1: Which apparently is an affront to Christians? Yeah, like... Question mark? I I don't really get it. They just changed their holiday cup this year. It's still a special holiday cup. It's red. Yeah. Do you keep the cup after you drink out of it (laughs) out of respect for... Jesus? For Jesus? No, you throw it in the garbage. It doesn't matter. There was never a... And they were... And literally, they're selling Advent calendars in their stores. They have, don't worry...
0: They have commercialized Christmas still. It's not a big deal, guys. But but this was manufactured outrage. I don't think oh, that, absolutely, I don't think absolutely. that anyone was actually pissed off about this until the media no offense to us. Uh, <laughs> there a few people in the media were just like, There are no snowflakes on here. This must, How dare they? They're they're getting rid of elements of Christmas. I'm just like, no Snowflakes aren't really an element of Christmas, <laughs> they're an element of winter. Yeah. And there was never and there are
1: people. In the world who don't have a white Christmas because they don't live
0: in a place where snow happens. In fact, it's very possible this year Edmonton may have a brown Christmas. That's right. It's just one of those weird El Nino years. Like all of the previous 10 or 15 years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's actually just climate change. Oh,
1: people keep blaming it on El Nino.
0: El, Ni- El Nino is supposed to be like an every five-year thing. And yet, every year, they're like, oh, there might be an El Nino this year. I think El Nino's here again. I,
1: I think that El Nino is just something that uh, that meteorologists make up when they can't explain what's going on. I know. They're just like, it's just El
0: Nino. You know what would be amazing?
1: It's like it's raining frogs in Kansas. <laughs> it's it's El some Nino. El Nino thing.
0: Actually, that's called Cal El Nino. <laughs> <laughs> It's like a super meteorological phenomenon. Speaking of super, we're gonna take a break, and when we come back, we're gonna be speaking with a dear friend of the Unknown Studio. You heard her uh, debate Star Trek at our live show at the end
1: of last season. And we will probably broach Star Trek with her, possibly even the announcement of a new Star Trek show with her. yes. When we are joined shortly by Samantha Power.
0: We're back, and joining us in the studio is Samantha Power, freelance journalist. Hello. Hi, Sam. Hi. We, uh, we wanted to have you on because, well, you've been on the show before. Yes. And uh, on the, in our live show, you debated the merits of, the, of Star Trek. Uh, yes. And you t- your position was the original Star Trek. You defended the original Star Trek, right?
2: Did I? I can't remember. I don't even remember. Sounds
0: right. It was so long ago. I was doing Next Generation, I think, and I was standing next to you, so you must have been Original Series. Yes, I think we... Yeah, I was. Yeah. Yeah,
2: I was Original Series.
0: Yeah. Was that hard, putting you on the spot like that, telling you very little about what the hell we were doing?
2: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay. Sorry about that. Uh, And now
1: we're doing it again today.
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, we wanted to get you in here because you're a friend of the show, and we wanted to talk about the state of journalism.
2: Oh, okay. And the reason
0: that I thought of it is because you actually, you did me a huge favor about a month ago, you presented at Nerd Night. Yeah. And your talk was basically about the state of journalism.
2: hmm
0: Now, you are, you practice, you perform acts of journalism. Yep. Very often. Yes. Um, but you're freelancing. Yeah. Uh, what is that like? How, what's, what is the, because fr- like going out and pitching ideas to someone that, I don't know how I would do that.
2: I'll say I don't totally enjoy it.
0: <laughs> what do you mean by that? I mean,
2: I like the flexibility of being able to come up with my own story ideas um, and write for outlets that I endorse, I guess, or that I f- feel confident in, in their integrity. Right. Um, uh, so that's a huge benefit. But the the pitching side of it is just really frustrating <laughs> And uh, I realized over the summer that I don't like having to connect my ideas to like a monetary value, you know. Like when you have a job as a journalist, you just produce your journalism and news and stuff like that. But if you put together an article, you are dependent that someone's going to buy it I- individually, you know. So
0: it's not it's not putting a price tag on what it is, like, but it's well, sort of. But it's it's, it's worth something.
2: Um, Yeah, it is. It is. I don't like thinking about it, I guess. It makes it difficult for me to come up with ideas. I found it really stunted, Hmm. my ability to come up with ideas.
0: Because of the pressure of like having to sell of
2: attaching it to an individual value.
0: What about like going out and actually finding, I think I know what you mean, but what about going out and finding the actual publication? Like do you, are you like, I want to write a story about X and I know that it's going to work for this publication. Yeah. Yeah,
2: um, I try. I mean, there are publications that I, uh, again, that I like believe in their the way they're set up. I like the way they they do their editorial team works and stuff like that. So, for example, I write for the Thai a lot, and their editorial team is awesome to work with. Like, they help you with your ideas, and they have a really good back and forth. And they also pay pretty well. Oh, that's good. <laughs> or decently.
0: Do 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 uh, publications still pay by the word? Is that still a thing? F-
2: mostly, I get paid of the um, for like a, an article. So it's a feature. Right. So a feature is worth this much. Some places still do per word, but
0: I can't believe that. I know per word it was. I think when I was writing for View like f- ten years ago, it was. 10 cents a word or something like that?
2: View is still 10 cents a word.
0: Oh my God, really? <laughs> yeah. That's crazy.
2: For, and that's for news articles.
0: Wow. So wait, it, would it be less for an arts article? Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> Turns out I only wrote news. That's actually not true. I wrote, I wrote CD reviews. So.
2: I actually stopped writing for them because the, the <clears throat> cost benefit of the amount of time and effort you're putting into a news story doesn't work out to the 10 cents a word you're getting
0: so what would okay so if you wrote an article for view Mm -hmm. and I know different articles take different amounts of time to write and research but like did you ever calculate an hourly rate yeah in my head I do (laughs) at its most how how much were you making per hour can you tell us that Uh,
2: no it was very small yeah I mean for, for the most like I was I was a news editor there. And so writing stories was just part of my job. Yeah. So that was calculated a little bit differently in my mind. But so then afterwards I was like, no, I can't write for you guys anymore. That's too bad. It
0: is. But that's the reality of it.
1: Is the 10 cents a word um, format, I'm going to say, or scale outdated? Is that the problem? Like, because if they've been paying 10 cents a word for 20 years... Unfortunately, uh, the cost of living has gone up since then, and it's is that like a minimum wage thing where it's just it just has never changed, and it probably should.
2: Uh, I mean, for alt, for alt weeklies, it's sort of a survival thing.
0: Yeah, it's probably all they can bear based on the amount of advertising. They That's have. fair,
2: and it's not bad because it's a really good starting ground for people who might be coming out of uh, campus writing or and making a transition that way. Like, it's a really good way to get. A little Pub- bit of
1: real experience. Yeah, published. And As opposed to the fake experience up. of writing for, say, The Gateway. <laughs> <laughs>
0: we both have that fake experience. We both do.
2: That actually really bothers me. When I went to journalism school, the kids who had done like campus newspapers, were the professors there treated them like that wasn't real experience.
0: Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm sure we're joking. I think we're joking. My, my, the work that I did at The Gateway uh, allowed me to freelance for like two years. Yeah. I wasn't, it wasn't all I did, but, like, I wrote article. I got to interview Wade Davis from the National Geographic, and we talked about getting stoned on ayahuasca. It was awesome. Yeah. I had a two-hour interview with Brett the Hitman Hart. Yeah. Like, so we got to do, we performed acts of journalism. Uh, acts, random acts
1: of journalism. <laughs> yes. And, and for the record, my Gateway experience got my foot in the door with my corporate journalism job mm-hmm. now. So that, that... I didn't need "quote unquote" real
0: experience after that. So, how do the professors treat these people?
2: Like they like they haven't done real work in
0: journalism. Come on, they totally have.
2: I know, like, and I mean, some of them, you know, were editors of of their papers. Uh, that's running a news section
0: now. Now, and, and
2: like you're saying, like speaking to Wade Davis, and like because uh, I worked at CJSR, like I interviewed people like. Um, Carol off who, from CBC, which As is it Happens, extremely yeah. nerve wracking because she's a brilliant interviewer. And so like you have these great experiences and they were just kind of completely discounted. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, t- okay. Tell me about this Carol off interview because you've talked to her twice. Yeah. Now, halfway through the interview, we're like, "Were you like Carol? Am I doing okay?" No. <laughs>
2: <'Cause> <laughs> yeah. Can we just pause and sort of uh, do feedback on how I'm doing? <laughs> yeah.
0: Am I making you comfortable? It's like, what was that like? You said it's obviously scary. I was
2: really nervous going into it because she is a journalist who kind of inspired me to start getting into journalism and so, like, you know, change the way I see journalism. So then to sit down with her and be like, "Oh, I'm I'm gonna ask her." 10 questions about her book and what she does and all this kind of stuff. Like, I spent hours preparing for that interview.
0: And it was, you were interviewing someone who was an idol. Yeah. But then you, you got to speak with her a couple years later, right?
2: Yeah. Because For her second book tour. That's
0: yeah. right. And, you, and tell you, because you got really excited about this when you were relating the story to me. She remembered you. She remembered me. <laughs> Must have gone well or very poorly. Yeah. Either way. <laughs> <It> was, yeah. <laughs> you made an impression. Yeah. <laughs> Carol Off knows who's Sam yeah. power. No,
2: she came back to CJSR and I, I introduced myself again and she was like, oh no, I remember you from last time. And I was like,
0: oh. Wait, was this in person? hmm Oh my God, that's awesome. Yeah. Because for me, like I know phone interviews are necessary evil. Yeah. Uh, but I would way rather talk to the person yeah. in person. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And that was sometimes the the benefit at CJSR was a lot of people were willing to come down to the radio station or you would catch people on their book tours and stuff like that.
0: Cool. Yeah. Who what's the most other than Carol? What's the most interesting or unusual person you've ever interviewed?
2: I co-interviewed Noam Chomsky.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> at the when you were at CJSR. Yeah. What is what does co-interview mean?
2: Well, Mike Hudema had we did uh Rise Up Radio Free Edmonton together for right. a number of years on CJSR. And, uh, he had booked the interview and i had only been working on the show for a couple of months. And so he was like, do you want to co-interview Noam Chomsky with me?
0: And did you just like throw up on him? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on Mike, not on Noam. No. And were you just like, oh, Mike, oh. <laughs> yes, I'll do it. Yeah. I feel like it would be one of those moments. Yeah. It was interesting for sure. So Brett the Hitman Hart, uh, Wade Davis,
1: Noam Chomsky. Yeah. My my Hitman interview story is great because we were interviewing him. It was myself and uh, two Photogs went to the hotel he was staying at because he was on tour because he was in that Aladdin show Oh that yeah. was making the rounds yeah. uh, f- many years ago
0: now. Was that like the traveling Broadway show or you, was uh, it Broadway?
1: It wasn't Broadway, but okay. it was some sort of traveling Aladdin. He was playing the genie. and uh, So he was in town doing media for it, and the Gateway got a media invite, as it does, because... People on campus might want to see the show, and so we were invited to go and interview him about Aladdin, and we spent five minutes talking about Aladdin and an hour and a half talking about wrestling holy and shit. the and the photogs and I were just like, "Go on, tell us more." <laughs> it was fantastic and uh we it maybe wasn't two hours, but I do recall specifically that the uh the media person who was there with him was like, "So you'll only have like x amount of time and it was way more time than we thought. We thought we were going to have like 10 minutes with him. Oh, really? And we were
0: like, we will take advantage of that time. No problem. I, tr- great. I tried to interview Donald Sutherland. And? Uh, his publicist was like, so it was it was uh, over, this, over this past summer when he wrote a letter to the Globe and Mail about expat voting. Right. Because that became right, a thing. Yeah, and yeah. that was sort of the genesis of the story that we worked on yeah. together. Uh, and I emailed his publicist. And I wasn't actually expecting a response. But like right away, she was like, Thank you. Your show sounds interesting. Mr. Sutherland has said all he wants to say about this. And I was just like, fuck you, Donald. You probably shouldn't say that on this podcast because he might be willing to be on your show for a different reason. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk about what you said about me. Because he
1: is because he is an expat and he might be interested in doing your show.
0: Maybe one day. Maybe one day. I also tried to get an interview with Chris Hadfield because I was like, well, I mean, he, he was an expat in space. So... I haven't kind of justify it. Haven't heard from his people. Have not heard from his people.
1: Apparently, he is an expensive person to line up if you want him to come and like talk at your event or something. How
0: much are we talking? A lot. Like 50 grand? Probably. More, maybe. I don't know. What do you guys have? You he's have 10 grand? I'd say 20, if, if you could afford it, it would be worth it. But And I mean, I mean
1: Chris Hadfield has
0: to make a living. Yeah.
2: Yeah. He's he. he there's he's like, he would be expensive. Oh, like, for sure. Baseline speakers are like 15.
0: I remember when we did the Canadian Univers- University Press Conference in 2004 in Edmonton. Don Iveson and I planned that together. Don't ask me how it went. Uh, he's the mayor now somehow. Um, but we brought in Lewis Lapham, who is the editor-in-chief of Harper's. And he was like, I want to say 50 or 40 grand. Yeah. Wendy Mesley was around the same. Yeah. And Ken Alexander from the walrus and the walrus was kind of new back then like it hadn't really existed for very long he's like just pay for my hotel and i'm having dinner with lewis lapham right and we were like yes sir whatever you say
2: yeah well i when i worked for the students union i booked the revolutionary speaker series oh yeah yeah and like yeah you're looking automatically at 15 or 20 before you get into like a-list people. And per diems yeah. and
0: hotel rooms.
1: I need to become an expert on something yes. Yes. and start and doing start keynotes. Charging. I need to refine my uh, talk on viral horror.
0: Seriously? And start
1: touring the country talking about that for money.
0: A friend of mine is uh, is um, learning how to do this sort of thing, how to become like a public speaker. Yeah. And even if you just MC an event, those people can make upwards of five grand a night. Just for standing there and being like, our next person is going to do X. This per- you know, like it's insane. Anyway, getting back to you, you have, so you, you're a student journalist. You were a student journalist, sorry. That's where you sort of uh, cut your teeth. And then you worked at View Weekly. Mm-hmm. And then you, and then some other stuff happened, presumably, I don't know. But then you went to journalism school in Ottawa. Yeah. Right, you went to get a master's in journalism. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like? Because all that I had been told when I was at the gateways, if you want to work in journalism, you must have a journalism degree.
2: Yeah, that's, that's the way they would like you to think.
1: Yeah? Yeah. Not so much? <laughs> that is
0: definitely the way they would like you to
1: think. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and where they would like you to spend your money too. Yeah. Did you, was it worth it? <laughs> I know that's a really pointed question, but
2: I definitely, like, the first year out, don't think so. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, I think that having a master's is going to be beneficial mm-hmm. uh, at some point. Um, but I'm not convinced that having a master's of journalism matters. Yeah. Um I mean, it's a great degree because it's communications and you do a lot of work very quickly and you're also in an academic environment. And then for people who do want to get into mainstream journalism, like work at the CBC or... It, it's fu- it's just funny because at journalism school, like, they really treat sort of three outlets as the top tier in the country. Oh,
0: wait, let's guess what they are. I, well, you already said one of them. Yeah. CBC. What else? What do you think? Globe and Mail. Mm-hmm. Toronto Star. Yeah, yeah okay. And Not so, the National Post, surprisingly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> They're kind of like, eh. Yeah,
0: yeah, you could work there if you want to kill yourself. <laughs> Sorry, everyone I know who works for the Post.
2: Well, <laughs> I think I know more people who work for the Post than any other Same outlet. Like.
0: <laughs> totally. Totally. I actually don't know anyone who works at the Star, I don't think.
2: Because those outlets don't hire. They, they don't hire people. And so it's funny that... I mean, my my school graduated 20 people per class, and they gear you towards the five jobs available at so those 20. outlets. Fuck me, that's crazy. And that's, like, that's fine if that's the type of job you want, but it really sets you up. I think the expectations for a lot of people in class sets it up poorly, and then you kind of feel like a failure for a while. A, a lot of people coming out of my class were didn't uh, –
0: we're interested. Right We're
2: like weren't interested in those jobs really.
0: So what? What did a lot of them wind up doing?
2: Um, I have a friend doing work in Africa right now. Um, oh my god! Yeah, like journalism work, but um, working for a foundation doing journalism work there. I have a friend who does amazing, actually, like long form pieces in BC for a community paper there.
0: Oh, cool! Yeah,
2: and she has a lot more freedom working for this community paper where if she pitches a good story idea, she comes up with great long-form pieces. And I'm saying long-form, like 1,000 words, which well, most, isn't huge, but it's...
0: Most people are used to 400 yeah. or less. Yeah. Like, I mean, read anything in Metro and it takes you two minutes because it's 300 words.
2: Yeah, and you know? so getting a job like that, there's sort of like a justification of like, well, I'm not, I'm not working at, you know, the Globe and somehow feeling inadequate for that. Mm-hmm. But it's like she's producing really good work.
0: If she's enjoying it, who yeah. cares, right? And if she's proud of what she's doing.
2: Yeah. So I think, I mean, journalism school is set up kind of for an old way of thinking about journalism. Okay. And it really felt like they're, so gearing people towards those jobs, of which there are very few available, and then um, being kind of dependent on maintaining that system of getting people into those jobs and relationships with those outlets and that kind of thing, and and there isn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of room in the school itself to talk about, hey, what comes next for journalism? That's
0: what I was going to ask.
2: Yeah, and there's almost like, a, almost like a fear of what comes next because, what does it mean for the school? And and that, that's understandable. I'm sure a lot of universities in a lot of different departments kind of struggle with that. Yeah. So, but because journalism has changed so much over the last 20 years, there's sort of like, and academia is so slow to catch up (laughs) to those things that there's not a lot of, uh, change to, and room for conversation around what's new. I mean, they had just implemented sort of, uh, a social media type of, um, journalism, class
1: really it's because they just cottoned on to the fact that that wasn't just a fad
2: (laughs) well and (laughs) that well and that to get a new class through an academic system that takes sometimes years to put new or even
0: to to change the existing curriculum yeah but the the other i think one of the other issues with that is that like i mean maybe that this is less of a problem now but who are you going to get to teach that stuff yeah. Like are you, you gonna get like the news director at Twitter to come in and teach a class at Carlton? May, well maybe that is an answer, but yeah. But uh, I just don't think they they thought about who would be the right resource to teach that stuff. Cause it's also it is also new. Mm-hmm. But you know, you know what's always driven me crazy is that places like the Gateway, even CJSR, yeah, they should be experimenting with all this new stuff and they're not. Yeah. They're doing they're doing it the old way because I don't know why. I actually don't know why. But why doesn't The Gateway have a robust YouTube channel? I know they're doing some podcasts. They should be doing tons of them.
1: You know, like, you need to get back in there and whip those kids
0: into shape? I mean, every time I go and speak at one of these cup conferences, I'm always just like, you guys can get away with literally anything. Yeah. Like, I published a Hitler bomb accidentally in The Gateway. Uh, that wasn't my fault, but that's a story for another day. Um, <laughs> you weren't the editor-in-chief at that time. Yeah, I was. No, you weren't. It was Kazor. With When Ross Moreau was there? Yeah, wasn't it KZOR? KZOR was coming in. Uh oh. I had to sit down. That was down. on your watch. I had okay. to sit down with Ross and be like, I hate to do this, but you have to... Did we have just named names there? Yeah, you have to resign. Anyway, <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> we can cut that out if you want. I don't give a oh, shit. Oh, because he,
2: he had just gotten the job. Yep. He had just
0: gotten the job as news editor. And it was a big misunderstanding, but it was one of those public perception things, you know? Like... Have to do damage control. Yeah, and the writer of that piece. Oh, well, if I said so. the wrong
1: thing on the air, I would be fired. Yeah, and the person who was writing would be fired, and uh, my news director would
0: be in serious trouble. But why? Why aren't these places doing? Why aren't they experimenting?
2: I don't know. It's. It's. I, I don't have a good answer for that. I think there's, in terms of like a s- school situation, mm-hmm. there's definitely. I really felt a fear around what comes next and that they, that maybe the structures they had set up, because everything's geared towards getting you a job at a daily newspaper. Right. And the structures set up don't, like, how do you work outside of that? What's, what's the form outside of those things?
0: But shouldn't, like, I mean, you could do multiple streams. You worked in television a little bit. Yeah. Right. Did you, did you learn about TV?
2: A little. I mean, at school, you mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, good. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, the, I, the other I thing. I guess.
2: I mean, it's not to me. It's not just a matter of you t- of them teaching social media skills, right? But it's teaching like journalism is no longer just a daily reporter at a newspaper. Yeah. And there's actually a program at in Halifax that is sort of an entrepreneurial type of journalism degree that they have just started. That's like here's how you become Jesse a, Brown. a journalist, yeah, basically, huh. outside of a system. And I think it's really the system thing that people cling on to, is, and, and those systems are breaking down.
0: Well, and, and we, you know, we were talking about cents per word, but now isn't it just, um, like, the the pool of money is smaller. Advertisers are willing to spend, are maybe not willing to spend as much on, like, okay, so I work in advertising. We used to sell to our clients, we'd buy advertising From say the journal, Uh, a like full color one page full color ad for one day was like ten grand. Mm -hmm. But who's gonna see that? Who's gonna who's gonna look at that ad and go, "I'm gonna do the thing the ad is asking me to do." I've just spent ten grand on that, when I could spend ten thousand dollars over six months on Google AdWords and probably be able to measure who's buying shit from my website.
2: I do think, and the, uh, where I think we're starting to see it. I mean, the Taiyi has existed for, I think, a decade now. Mm-hmm. But uh, And I talk about their funding model a lot, but I think it's one that is sustainable into the future where they have foundation money, they work off of donations, they work off of advertising. So you have like three or four different pools of money coming into your um, system. It's yeah. not just advertising. Yeah, that's um, smart. Yeah, and... I, Again, I think it's sort of like a mainstream journalism view that those outlets are somehow compromised because they accept foundation funding or that they have a certain view of the world or whatever. But I think slowly readers um, are starting to realize that the National Post has a certain view on the world and the Globe and Mail has a certain view on the world and like that it's that your bias is there regardless. Because definitely at journalism school, they they still have this idea that you can be a balanced reporter. Really? Yeah.
0: Huh. I don't get that.
2: I don't understand it either.
0: <laughs> I mean, I understand the intent behind it, but that's not really the world we live in anymore.
2: No. Or at least it doesn't feel like it to me. No, and the aim is really like an act of journalism, like doing your research, um, being upfront about you know, who you are being paid by and talking to and all this kind of stuff.
0: I never understood the, uh, the, the thing that bothered me about journalism is as with the balance and, and all that stuff is it never, it felt like outside of opinion articles, it never allowed the writer to come to a conclusion. Mm -hmm. It was always, here's the information, good luck reader.
2: And I find it very strange because journalists should be some of the most informed people. Out there, yeah. so if they've done all the research and talked to all the people, of course they should come to a conclusion,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, isn't that what like what John Oliver and John Stewart were doing mm-hmm. like they were they were they were taking a position, they were certainly delivering information, but they were also taking a position. What?
1: I like that we're speaking of John Oliver in the past tense because <laughs> he's just you know yeah. flashing the pan that's
0: right. right no, I know no, he's still doing his thing and he's good
2: well, I like his uh, set up for those, what are they called? The longer pieces that he does. Um, I don't know, I don't know if they that. have a name, but the, like when he, like a feature. Yeah. When he yeah. talks about like transgender rights or something, Yeah, he sets really sets it up like, okay, if we as Americans believe in these things, according to the constitution, and then we enact these laws, like they're in contradiction, uh, like in contradiction. Yeah. So that, and that's like, that's doing your research and coming to a conclusion and, but presenting it like, Hey, here's what the facts are. Yeah. We all agree we believe we believe in these things, but here's what we're doing.
0: Yeah, and like people are going to either agree or disagree. Like it's still whether he's funded by advertisers or by a foundation, you know, you still they're pretty transparent about that on mm-hmm. like certainly the Tai tells people how they get their money.
2: Oh yeah, there's a full page about it.
0: So then you get to read the stuff, bearing that in mind and come to how people are going to get their information. Uh, is it always going to be, we were talking about this earlier, thing that takes place there that's not a reflection of reality. I worry about what journalism is going to look like in 10 years. After we're done recording, let's figure we'll, it out. We'll all put our heads together. Put and together a plan? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And we will solve journalism. Solve, so, that's right. That's what this, We'll solve all the problems. I hope so. God, I hope so. <laughs> you know, it's that time in the show, Scott, where... Already? Yeah. We've reached to that time? Yeah, I mean, this has been such a great conversation, but we're near the end of it. And now we must do the thing that I love. Talk about Star Trek. Partly, yeah. Actually, we are going to do that in were, the Fast Fifteen. That's right. Going
2: to like make us sing a song or something.
0: Yeah, we're uh, everyone hold hands. Uh, no, we're not doing that. It
2: really sounded like it was going in that direction. <laughs> you looked worried. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what is
0: this? Really, so this is the Fast Fifteen. show it's a rapid fire question round the first 13 questions are questions we ask of every single guest the last two are tailor-made to your tastes
2: Uh oh
0: are you ready (laughs) yeah they're super easy okay number one your favorite food pizza number two your favorite color does
2: anyone not say pizza yes yeah many
0: people don't say pizza oh yeah
2: my favorite color
0: yeah Red. mac pc or linux mac (laughs) dogs or cats cats coffee or tea coffee. Your favorite holiday? Oh, you look upset. Uh
2: holiday I don't know, October. <laughs> All of October. There's a lot that
0: happens in October. Actually, yes. That's great. Uh favorite sport? Sport. <laughs> yes. Bowling. Yes, of that course. That is a sport. Favorite pastime? Bowling? Go to binge watch on Netflix.
2: Uh, I don't have
1: internet.
0: Well, when you were binge watching.
2: You know, it's kind of embarrassing what I was watching. Let's hear it. Give up on that show. There's not much of a point to it anymore. Yeah. Like, it's just, it just recycles all the storylines.
1: You know what? I'm committed. Yeah. I hate this show, but I'm <laughs> just committed to it now.
0: For me, it's like we've got an Apple TV. And when I come back, I'm like, well, yeah, I guess we'll still watch Deep Space Nine because <laughs> fuck, we've been watching it forever. Hey, uh, if
2: people haven't watched Lillehammer, though, on oh, yeah? Netflix, it's really good. With
0: Steven Van Zandt. Yes.
2: Stevie, little Steven. Little
0: Stevie. Um, What about your favorite movie? Ever? Sure. Or recently. Interpret the question how you like.
2: Well, Wrath of Khan.
0: Acceptable. Uh, Die Hard? Also acceptable. Both of those are correct answers. Um,
1: You look really concerned.
2: I can't (laughs) name one. I was like, I could give you five.
0: Favorite video game?
2: the N64 version of James Bond. Sold, That
0: is also a correct answer. <laughs> That's golden eye for the record. Yeah. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Uh, I
2: don't know.
0: Okay. Flying. Awesome. Acceptable answer. Yep. Not correct, but acceptable. What?
2: What's the correct answer?
0: I don't know. It's Invisibility. Not, there you go. That's also a common answer. Yeah, it is.
1: Invisibility and flying tend to be the two most
2: common. Yeah. What it's, what's a weird one people say?
0: Uh, the ability to control the growth of hair on my body. No one's ever said that. I'm just saying that now. And also that's what you wish was your superpower. You guys would be disgusted if I wasn't wearing a shirt right now. It's like a it's like a rug. Um, st- <laughs> Star Wars or Star Trek? It's
2: not even a question. I know. No,
0: but yeah. but I, for the record. It is, it is
1: one of the regular questions.
0: For the record. Star Trek. Yes. Okay. Now we're on to our wild card questions. Favorite alien race in Star Trek and why?
2: Ooh, good question. <laughs> yes,
0: she's thinking. This is a tough one, actually. This is, Scott came up with the a- captain. Yeah. What's the best series? No, no. What's the
1: best alien race
0: and why?
2: I'll probably change my mind on this, but I think I'm going to go with Klingons.
0: And why? Why Klingons?
2: Because they and they consistently provide interesting conflicts in the show. Both both like. Individual Klingons and the Empire itself.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, that's a great answer. That's a fair answer. That's yeah. a good answer. We would have also accepted any number of aliens. For sure. <laughs> um, finally, the last question, the last wild card question: Will Jordy ever score with the ladies? Yes. Why do you say that?
2: Uh, he's pretty cool in first contact. <laughs> yeah, he's cool. You know, he's,
0: for a nerd.
2: Yeah, I mean, he was pretty nerdy at the beginning.
0: Do you think he banged some past people? While he was there, yeah, you think he just like <laughs> accidentally became his own grandfather? He, he couldn't. <laughs> he wasn't working on the Phoenix the whole time. Yeah, that's fair. Someone, you gotta go to bed. They
2: were like down there for a while.
0: I know, for sure. They tainted Earth, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Jordy, quite possibly with his taint. So. <laughs> no, <laughs> disgusting. But that's how we do it here on the Unknown Studio. Sam, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: And we will. Be back in a few weeks with another episode.
1: You've been listening to The Unknown Studio, episode 123. Our guest, Samantha Power, pre production by Adam Rosenhart, post production by Scott C. Bourgeois. You can visit us on the web at theunknownstudio.ca. Thanks for listening. Adam is leaving the room right now to go and get himself, and I quote, a soda pop. That's not hilarious. Because he is a thirsty man with a thirsty appetite for soda. Um, and he's left me here by myself with the microphone. And uh, it's rare that you hear my voice exclusively and not him interjecting with hilarious insights. Um, you know what? Uh, I'm going to take this moment to praise Adam behind his back because it's been a great couple of years working on The Unknown Studio with him. I couldn't have imagined a better co-host to do it with. Uh, he's always been funny and insightful and witty and uh, just a, a great all round friend to have in my life. I really appreciate all the time that we've put into this and the time we've had together doing it, and I am going to miss meeting up to do The Unknown Studio after it's done. That's not to say that uh, I'm... I'm completely torn up that it's ending because uh, I feel that we we have done a good run and I'd I'd rather end it on our own terms rather than let it peter out. And who knows, maybe in a couple years, uh, the Unknown Studio will have the dust brushed off of it and we'll get back to it. But Adam, it's been a great couple years uh, working with you and uh, I will will miss doing it. And hopefully uh, we continue to work together well into the future on different projects. And now you're returning, so I'm gonna stop talking. I am saying hilarious things into the microphone.
0: Have you just been saying that phrase
1: repeatedly? No. That's good. That is not at all what I have been doing. So what I
0: guess I'm going to have to listen one of these days.
1: One day.